Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my seventh conversation with Dr Ashton, based upon his book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Last time we noticed the absence of uncontested intermediates in the fossil record. Today, we're examining the geological evidence for a catastrophic global flood. Dr Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome, John. It's great to see you again. Yeah, hello, Barry. Good to be here. And I'm looking forward to this conversation particularly today. Oh, thank you. John, much of the surface of the planet is covered with rock strata that formed underwater. That is uncontested. Our explanatory choices for the rock strata are repeated local flood events, rising and falling sea levels, and volcanic and earthquake disturbances of lakes and seas over a vast period of time, or a massive worldwide flood event and its aftermath and continuing local flood events. What do we actually see when we look at the Earth's crust and why is it evidence for a catastrophic global flood? Yeah, so that's an important question. Uh, Geologists uh, recognise that the surface of the Earth is essentially covered with a very thin layer of sedimentary rock. Now, to to get this in perspective, if um, about 75% of the surface of the Earth is covered with sedimentary rocks that have been down in the vast majority of cases underwater. So this is powerful evidence that the Earth was covered with water, um, at least at uh, many times in the past, actually, when we look in more detail at these layers. Now... When we think that 75% uh, plus is covered with the sedimentary layers and of the remaining amount, part of that are sedimentary rocks that have been metamorphosed, that is under the influence of heat, Uh, the remainder rocks are volcanic rocks. So when we look at this uh, composition and realise that it's only 5% of the Earth's crust is made up by this layer, we can see it's a very thin layer over the surface of the Earth. So with that picture, when we drill down into these uh, structures, we find the same sort of layers all around the world. And so this is powerful evidence that the whole world was covered by water. Now, this is a major problem for people uh, and those scientists that are trying to put together models that these layers were laid down by local small floods and and lakes and so forth because these layers are around the world and they're essentially the same pattern. And they cover vast distances too, don't they? Oh, yes. Some of the, well, the when we look in detail at the stratigraphy, it's the, we find that the different rock types are laid down in layers. So these sedimentary rocks are laid down in layers. And I'm sure we've all seen these bands of rocks that we've driven through uh, cuttings on freeways or highways or railway cuttings, um, cliffs by the seaside, this sort of thing. You see the, the layers there, and, and some might be uh, the white or light grey coloured limestone type 
type rocks. Others will be the conglomerates where we have big pebbles cemented in sandstone. Others will be uh, sort of like uh, what we call the shales that'll be a fine grained um, layers. Uh, then there's the, the typical sandstone layers that we see. And, and we see these layers, they're, they're laying down as these bands around the, around the world. And when we think all these types of rocks represent uh, formations that have formed underwater. Hmm. Now, through them, of course, we might find um, volcanic uh, rocks that uh, we see come through them, like on the beaches around uh, here where we live. There are the the dikes where volcanic intrusions have come up and, and cut through these things. And in some places, of course, they spill out over the top of the, the sedimentary rocks and, and cover them. So these layers show that these uh, deposits uh, were laid down, and in particular ores, and as you were referring to, some of them are absolutely massive, like m- many of us have heard of the, the White Cliffs of Dover. Well, that's a, a massive Cretaceous limestone deposit laid down the Cretaceous uh, period, say 100 million years ago, according to conventional dating. Now, that stretches from Ireland across Europe right down to Turkey. And it's really the same time period and the same uh, layers that we find here in uh, Australia on the Great Australian Bight. Those massive limestone cliffs there are from the Cretaceous. Now, the geology textbooks say that during the Cretaceous period, the world was essentially entirely covered by water. So the the textbooks and the the geologists recognise this, that the the earth was covered with water. Now, you mentioned that uh, the sedimentary rocks only covered a very small percentage of the Earth's crust. But when you look at the depth of some of these, like you're talking about two-kilometre layers mm. of um, water-deposited limestone that surround the Grand Canyon with these massive fossils in it, mm. you realise that we're not just talking about a local flood, are we? Oh, it's impossible for it to have been a local flood. Now, when we say a small percentage of the Earth's crust, it's a small percentage of the Earth's crust in terms of volume. Volume, yes. But in terms of areas it covers, it's it's more than 75%. Mm. Now, when we look at, say, those deposits, and, and let's perhaps just consider, uh, for example, the, the Morrison Formation in the United States, because this is where a lot of the dinosaurs are buried. So here we have... Um, a, a layer of uh, this particular uh, sandstone type of material that stretches from uh, north of Texas up to Canada. So it's a massive area that is that is covered. It's about, uh, from memory, it's about 100 uh, metres deep, 300 feet deep. Now, this massive amount of material buried dinosaurs, Land-dwelling dinosaurs. So here we have animals that, big animals and small ones, of course. But we're famous for the it's famous for the big ones like Tyrannosaurus rex that we find there. So here we have these large animals, land-dwelling animals that have been buried uh, by this sediment that's, as I said, 100 metres thick, 300 feet thick. And it's over this huge area that stretches uh, from, uh, like, New, as I said, New Mexico up to Canada. So, you know, you can't have that sort of structure form. You can't bury those great big animals um, in, 
you know, with some sort of little local flooding. You know, a few years ago we had the uh, the big Queensland floods. Now, from memory, I can remember an area the size of the state of New South Wales were in, was covered in Queensland. But we didn't see a massive amount of fossilisation of kangaroos and lizards and wombats and birds and things like this. But yet this is what we observe in the, in the United States here. Mm. Now, we also see that... Um you get the same particular combinations of layers of sedimentary strata around the world. So this indicates that it's most likely to have resulted from a worldwide flood rather than just local, a series of local floods. Yes, well, there are, well there's a, a number of points that come out there from uh, your comment. Most of the geology textbooks recognise that there were about five major extinction events on the Earth involving water. So essentially, they're saying that, sure, all these fossiliferous layers, that is, there were massive, catastrophic flood-type events that occurred where the uh, animals were buried, birds, fish and so forth were buried and, and fossilised then in these formations. But these events are separate and they occurred tens to hundreds of millions of years apart, which, you know, is sort of crazy, really. Well, the problem <laughs> is that you don't see um, signs of intermittent erosion between well, the that, layers. Th- this, is a, this is exactly right. Um, there's a classic example of where you've got rocks from the uh, Cambrian, which is, say, 500 million years old, according to conventional dating, And in between, you've got the layers running up, all conformably laying on top of one another, no uh, signs of erosion, and we've got fossils in the Cambrian. And then we come up, and then you've got the Cretaceous on top, say 100 million years. So you've got 400 million years of layers on top of one another, laying with no signs of erosion in between. Um, It's just sort of... How, how can that be? How can those rocks be there for so long, all parallel on top of one another with no signs of erosion? And yet these these sorts of formations are found all around the world in this particular layer. And of course, as you were saying, with the similar layers all over the world, there's a characteristic quartzite layer that underlies the uh, foliferous Cambrian. So the Cambrian layers quite low down, as I said, stated around about 500 uh, million years, 550 million years, very rich in fossils. That's where your characteristic trilobites and uh, so forth are, are found, nautiluses and, and so forth. Many, many types of, uh, of animals and fossils are found in that layer. And underneath that layer is a, is a unique quartzite layer. So that's a, a type of sandstone, very rich in, in quartz, that is laid down under that, uh, under that layer there. Now that's found all around the, all around, uh, across the globe, this characteristic layer of this very thin quartzite layer. And then on top of the quartzite layer is the uh, other uh, Cambrian uh, layers, foliferous, uh, fossiliferous Cambrian layers. And, and that's a very interesting pattern that lies over the world. And then from then on, you step up through all the, the other uh, f- uh, layers in the geological column. You mentioned four areas that actually have these sedimentary strata 
in the in the sequence. Britain, Greenland, the Canadian Rockies, and Australia all have this 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 similar sequence. Oh, so well, would that well, it would be all the continents. It'd be in China and Africa. It's around the world. It's the same. And that's how the geological column was built up, the fact that these layers are essentially found in the same order around the world. Now, in some places, they're, they're missing. There might be a big gap, and yet the layers are conformably uh, laying between... Uh, so you've got these beds laid down on top of one another, no signs of erosion, but in some places, say in the Grand Canyon, there's about 100 million years of layers missing. Another Between another two set of strata, strata, there's about 14 million years of layers missing. But there's no signs of erosion. So the, the main uniformitarian model that all these processes took millions of years and these uh, sedimentary uh, layers were formed very slowly, a tiny little layer each year, and then corresponding to millions of years, um, just doesn't fit the evidence that we have. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. You can't bury huge animals like that. The, the other fascinating thing is that some of these um, deposits, and I can't remember which one it is it, uh, from memory, but in the United States there's a massive area where they've found all these uh, fossils, and it covers you know, thousands of square um, uh, kilometres or square miles of, uh, of area. And when they've analysed the, the type of uh, crystals and minerals there, they re- and, and this is over in the western side of the United States, they realised that the material came from Canada and the eastern part of the United States. So there was a massive movement of about 2,000 kilometres, um, you know, 1,500 miles or so, across the United States of, of material, of huge amounts of material that covered, you know, hundreds of uh, thousands of uh, square miles. So it's, uh, it's how, how can you move these massive amounts of material across? It, it's got to be an unbelievable catastrophic event on the surface of the Earth, not some slow, um, you know, deposition where it's a, a lake uh, filling up with water and depositing sediments or uh, an earthquake sort of changing sea levels or some sort of tsunami event. These are massive events, way beyond any tsunamis we've ever uh, in human history record, apart from the flood. I'd like to take a look at some specific examples mm-hmm. in a moment, but perhaps this is an appropriate time to talk about the whole concept of catastrophism because for decades it was out of favour with geologists and it seems to be coming back into favour. So we've got to the point where they're recognising major events, major flood events, but there's still this lack of desire to recognise a global flood event. Well, very much so. Um, you know, professor Derek Ager, who's a professor of geology at um, the University of Swansea in Cardiff, in uh, Wales, um, he um, has uh, published a book there, uh, Catastrophic Past. Now, he wants to immediately remove uh, any notion that he is supporting the flood. He says, you know, I, I don't support the flood. But really, every so many things that he points out point 
to a global catastrophic flood as described in the Bible. And, of course, one of the evidences for these that he points to, and also Lyle, who was responsible for the geologic column, was aware, is that you've got examples, for example, of tree trunks that pass vertically up through, uh, you know, 15, 20 feet of these layers that were supposedly laid down over thousands of years. But we know here, here we've got this tree going up through them. So it must have been deposited very quickly. And I, I know in the area here, um, I've, I've seen some in the, in the cliffs down uh, in the quarries just south of Swansea there, um, where you've got uh, the fossil of a, uh, of a tree, a colified tree, going up through the, through the sandstone. And um, I I've, uh, know one of the geologists that studied at Sydney University and um, he had been into some of the mines here and I have also have other friends that have been underground in the mines here where they find the uh, large trees that run up through several layers of the strata of coal and the intermediate strata. Because, of course, as you know, we're in a very large coal mining area here, um, where we are here is undermined. Yes. So um, how, how can you have these vertical tree trunks going through all these days? It shows they must have been buried very quickly. And we had that scenario with the Mount St. Helens um, volcano where in um, the lake there, we, all these trees were floating vertically in the water. And, of course, subsequently they uh, could be buried in, say, a flood situation. And, again, as we talked about last week, we've been able to show that these were from the St Helens uh, eruption. We saw these structures like little mini Grand Canyon form just in a day with all these layers in between, which if we came across them using uh, a conventional geologic interpretation, we'd say, oh, well, this took thousands of years to form, but yet we know it formed in a day. And so that's, so, a, that's a serious anomaly than these polystrate fossils. Yes, yes. So they're going through different mm. different strata. And the ones in Nova Scotia have been studied again quite recently. So these were ones Lyle uh, saw them. He, he, he wrote them up in his notes. This is where you have these trees, yes, in, in the cliffs going up through the uh, all the different strata. And when they've examined them quite closely, they've actually found the fossilised remains of animals in these trees they're obviously fleeing the rising floodwaters. Yes. And I, I, I can't remember how many different types of uh, species uh, that have been uh, recorded there offhand, but it, you know, it's, it's more than uh, a couple of dozen different types of species. Matter of fact, I think it might even be close to 100 different types of species have been found in these trees who are obviously trying to escape the, the floodwaters. Let's look now at some specific examples uh, talk to us about the Shinarump conglomerate in Utah, where you have this fossil wood. Um, you've got the layer, I think the fossil wood in the, in the layer is about um, 30 metres thick, but it covers 250,000 square kilometres. Yes, well, that's right. You, you've got uh, that. This is the, the other point. The, these layers, like the Shinarump layer and the Chinelli formation, they spread over you know, hundreds of thousands of square kilometres and they contain fossils of land-dwelling animals and fossils of uh, wood and, and, and this sort of thing. 
So again, you know, it's all a catastrophic. You know, the size of these deposits, the amount of material that has to be removed, requires huge flows of water to be moving. Now, I think it's the Chinelli Formation where there's quite a bit of um, uh, uh, work has been done. Um, I, I think that's the one actually now that you've mentioned it or now that I've uh, thought about where they've actually traced the material must have come a couple of thousand kilometres from the other side of the United States. And of course the other one is the Coconino uh, sandstone which is exposed in the Grand Canyon and that has uh, preserved uh, and uh, the fossil remains of, of footprints of thousands of animals and when they've studied these footprints they're running uphill but they also believe that they were formed underwater. So we all know if you're walking up a, a, a sandbank in the sea, you leave little, little um, tracks. But for these then to be buried and fossilised, it's a very rapid movement of something happening on a huge scale. And the, the, all this material is reported in the conventional um, uh, Geology literature. As a matter of fact, I think it was a study published in by one of the, in the, one of the Smithsonian journals about the uh, the evidence for these uh, reptiles and so forth running uphill. And you uh, also suggest that that uh, means the tracks were made underwater too. Yes, yes. So this is a this is a sandstone formation hmm. that covers five hundred and twenty thousand square kilometres. Yes, and that's the lower, huge, isn't it? And the lower half has hundreds of fossilised footprints of amphibians or reptiles. That's hmm. um, and it's 150 metres thick. Hmm. The sandstone formation. So, so do we, we don't we don't see that today, do we? We don't see that forming <laughs> no. today. I mean, it just it's just so hard for us to comprehend the size of that. As you as you've said there, uh, you've got 150 metres thick, over um, 450 uh, feet uh, thick. And um, 520,000 uh, square kilometres. I don't know what that would be in um, square miles, but I'm sure it'll be over 100,000 square miles. That's, that's a huge amount of, of area. So if, if you think it's, it's sort of 100,000 100, square miles, it's uh, well, the, 100 the, miles by 1,000 miles, isn't it? You know, it's huge. Well, the Chinle <laughs> formation that we talked about before is 2.3 million square kilometres. Hmm. That's that's a massive hmm. flood, even if it's a even if it's a lo- if it's a local. One. <laughs> uh, well, it's you, not a local flood. Is it? No, the uh, point is this: these deposits were laid down by absolutely massive catastrophic conditions, and yet when we're working out the ages, what do we do? We count up the layers and we say this represents hundreds of millions of years. You know, you can't have the them both. Yeah, yeah, no, they're incompatible uh, hypotheses. Either there was a massive flood event that caused this and deposited this huge 100 metres thick layer. Um, it's totally inconsistent to say that those layers, 150 metres um, thick, were laid down over thousands of years, let alone millions of years. Mm. So there's, there's a major problem with the interpretation of the stratigraphy of the surface of the Earth when we take this long-age uh, uniformitarian model. Now, you mentioned the Morrison Formation. Mm. Uh, in your book, you say that's 1.5 million square kilometres, and it's 100 metres thick from Texas to Canada mm. with land animal fossils. Mm. 
Yes. And that's right. obviously consistent with a catastrophic rather than a slow, gradual deposition. Mm. Yeah, so that's the one I mentioned earlier where we find uh, it's quite rich in dinosaur remains. And these are quite, many of them are quite large animals uh, to, uh, to bury. So the whole picture clearly fits the, the biblical picture that the entire earth, the surface of the earth was disrupted. The Bible talks about the fountains of the deep opened up. Um, we understand from that that uh, there was massive volcanic action. And uh, there was the, the rain, the water falling as well. But also we understand there was groundwater coming up. There was probably massive movement of the earth plates at that time. There was a massive disruption of the surface of the earth underwater. Now, the other thing that comes out with a lot of these things, such as in the Coconino sandstone, there it's exposed in the Grand Canyon, is that we can see what we call the cross bedding. So that's, that's sort of like a... You, you can see these slopy lines within the sandstone itself. Now, from the angle of these lines, uh, it's possible to estimate the current flow of the water that was moving, that was depositing these underwater dunes of sand, so mm. to speak. And we can see that those water flows correspond to the sort of water flows that you'd see in a tsunami. So we, but that's some tsunami, isn't it? When you when you think you're depositing two hundred fifty thousand square uh, kilometres of uh, material, one hundred fifty metres thick, uh, four hundred fifty feet thick, that, that, that's a massive tsunami. <laughs> yes, and, and in the Coconino sandstone, there doesn't seem to be any local source for this. So this has had to be transported. A massive distance to bring that sandstone in to that area. Yes, and that, that's the other fascinating thing about many of these deposits. Where did the where did the material come from? And the few that they have been able to track down, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the one specific example. And remember, I I, I know the estimate was that the sand was moved uh, two thousand kilometres. So um, you mentioned also that there was no local source of sand for the Supai group of sandstones, which were several strata below the Coconino. That had to be transported vast distances too. Well, that, well, that, well, that's right. And um, actually, uh, I, I think that's the uh, the Navajo sandstone, wasn't it, in southern Utah? Uh, that's the one where they've tracked down the zircon. And that had to come from the Appalachian Mountains or mm. northeast United States. Yes, yes, that's right. When they identified the uh, particular inclusions in the zircon and uranium, and that's right, from the mineral analysis. So that, that, um, that, mm. that massive movement of water we've not observed, have we, in historical times? No, no, not, not time. in historical times, apart from the flood. So we have the flood record, of course, and we can talk about that another time, is recorded in so many cultures around the world. And so that what we see on the surface of the earth in these continents, in Australia, in America, in Europe, is this evidence. And in China, a lot of research uh, studies coming out of China now, they've found a similar situation in China of finding um, the uh, dinosaur uh, tracks and so forth, again, with the same uh, characteristics that they seem to be running. And they're all running in the same direction. So they're running away from something, some, and then they're buried. So it, it just fits a massive tsunami, flood-type scenario. But the important thing to remember is, okay, we, we have these descriptors. 
And obviously then you, ha- you have to have these huge amounts of material deposited very quickly. But then what happens is the conventional science moves on to the other foot and they look at all these layers and they say, well, these layers represent you know, yearly deposits or something like this in a lake. And they, and they say it happens over millions of years. So this is the massive inconsistency with the interpretation of the geological record. You can't have it. The overwhelming evidence is that there was a catastrophic global water event on the earth. The Bible calls it the flood, Noah's flood. Now, some students of the Bible have attempted to say, well, it was just a little local flood in the area of Palestine there. But we can see it doesn't, it doesn't fit that. There's a problem with We've cons- got flood evidence all over the world. There's a problem with consistency there too because God said he wouldn't send another flood if it was a local one and his, his, <laughs> his word hasn't been held, has it? No, no, that's right. And, and so the attempt to bend the biblical uh, reading to fit some sort of uh, conventional science interpretation involving uniformitarianism, long ages and small local flood events just just doesn't work either. And in my view, it's a shame that people have attempted to support the Bible in that way. We we don't have to be afraid of supporting the Bible uh, and make up some, or not make up, but, you know, sort of try to um, adapt scientific uh, evidence to, to fit the Bible. What the Bible says is very clear. When we go out and we look at the structure of the surface of the earth, it's very clear. There was a massive, catastrophic global flood event. It was a it was a catastrophic event involving water moving vast amounts of material and depositing them and with it burying uh, huge amounts of plants and animals that make up our coal deposits, our brown coal deposits uh, and the fossils that we find all around the world. And, you know, the these events, uh, yes, the, the, the rock evidence is there. It's in stone. Let's look at some more anomalies in the slow and gradual model uh, before we go to our break. Mm-hmm. We find a lack of canyons, gorges and valleys preserved in the strata. If it were slow and gradual, we should find evidence of erosion and irregular surfaces. We see it on the surface of the Grand Canyon. You get these, you get the erosion on the surface, but you don't see it in the layers. Exactly. That's mm. a serious anomaly, isn't it? Well, it's, it's very serious, and, and it's the same all around the world. The Grand Canyon is just a particularly spectacular and obvious example of this because you've got, say, on the eastern wall of the Grand Canyon, uh, I think uh, from memory, you've got a huge exposure of these layers that run uh, hundreds of millions of years. Um, I think it would run down to the Cambrian at the bottom and up to at least the Cretaceous, if not more recent, at the top. I can't remember exactly, but here, and when you look across, you can see these layers. They're on top of one another. And they're essentially parallel. And they're essentially almost horizontal. And there's no massive erosion occurring. And yet we look at the topography over there today, there's, there's massive erosion. And we know that erosion takes place quite quickly. We know that in the past, these areas were much wetter. Um, there's the whole picture is just inconsistent that that could possibly represent 400 million years. You can't have 400 million years and no erosion. 
I mean, it, it's just common. It's just common sense. And the erosion rates are going to be a lot higher. I mean, we've we've got data on the the basis of the like you know recent uh, geographical studies of erosion rates show that the continents would erode away in ten million years or so. So this is data we measure today. Um, and it's highly possible if there was higher rainfall in the past that uh, the erosion rates would have been much higher. So, again, it's inconceivable to have all these layers on top of one another representing hundreds of millions of years and no erosion in between um, or insignificant erosion. You know, they're virtually parallel, flat layers. So the evidence <laughs> is really suggesting that the, all the layers were laid down quickly and then we see the erosion on the top whereas we don't see it between the layers. So that seems to indicate that um, it wasn't laid down slow and gradually, as you as you suggested. Now, we also have some missing geological layers, hmm. some of yes. these covering vast periods of geological time, hmm. according to the slow and gradual model. Hmm. What's the significance of these missing geological layers? Well, I mean, that's an interesting puzzle for the... Um for the uniformitarian model because if they're missing, the only way they can be missing, according to that theory, is they'd have to be eroded away, but there are, there's no evidence for erosion. So, you know, it, it's a major problem. If, however, everything was laid down at the one time, then it just means that those particular types of sediment didn't reach that particular area at that time and that's why they weren't laid down. You know, there's massive evidence that all these structures were laid down very, very quickly at the same time. That's This solves the problem. If we have a short-term, massive catastrophic event where all these things are buried on top of one another, uh, that, that fits what we see very, very nicely. The flood picture described in the Bible fits very nicely. You also mentioned the European Alps and Australian coal deposits and the problems that they pose for the uniformitarian model? Well, it's the same thing. It's, uh, these, it, we've got the parallel layers, uh, very little signs of erosion in between. Um, it's, it's essentially the same scenario. Mm. You also have the problem of layers of the geologic column being out of sequence with older layers overlaying younger layers. What's an example? How is it conventionally explained and what's the problem with the explanation? Yes, well, this is very interesting. So what you can have here is you can have, say, rocks that are 400 million years old, according to conventional dating, lying on top of rocks that might be only 100 million years old. Now, this is observed. So in other words, the order's the wrong way. Now, the conventional explanation is that the Older rocks that were originally lower down, as they were, would conventionally be interpreted, and there was some earthquake discontinuity, and they were pushed up and then pushed over the top of the younger rocks with some massive upheaval on the earth. Now, now that's reasonable. The only thing is that some of these ones, um, the the rock movement has been over very last area, vast areas. So you've got this huge slab of rocks supposedly 400 million years old being pushed 20 or 30 kilometres over the top of other rocks. Now, often these layers are laid down where there's, again, there's no rupturing of the rock underneath, there's no piling up or um, 
forming like these overlapping tile-like structures. You can imagine if you when you go to try and push carpet along. Um, and push something along the, the surface of carpet, the carpet ripples up sort of thing. So you, we would expect that with the underlying rocks. You've got these massive layers of these older rocks being pushed over the top. But we don't see that. So Often that's a they lie conformably over the top of the younger rocks. So the only way that that could happen is, again, there must have been massive hydraulic forces and lubrication that enabled that to, to happen, um, or else the rocks were laid down in the opposite order, you know, at the time of the flood for whatever reason. But again, the only way you can have it is you've got to have some massive water event with hydraulic forces and some sort of lubrication allowing that to occur. So that's again <laughs> consistent with the... Um with the it's consistent model. with the flood. There's a there's a massive one in North America, the Lewis Overthrust, um, which is about it's on the near the Rocky Mountains there, uh, near the Glacier uh, National Park there, north of Montana, for memory. Um, it's about 500 miles long. Um, I think the this it's about 50, 50 or 60 miles wide, and this whole area has been slid over the top of younger rocks. And, well, that's what we find. We find this, the structure is reversed there. And so how that could happen again without, you know, without the rupturing, with all this sort of thing, it must have occurred with some sort of lubrication. So, and there must have been massive hydraulic-type forces uh, to, uh, to, uh, to enable that. So it might have happened if the sediments were soft, wet, it might have been able to happen more effectively. Well, then. it's interesting that you've raised that with the soft wet uh, sediments, because here you've got this. The, you've got a massive water situation, but you've got say the very soft. Um, you've got a case in some cases of these uh, Cretaceous sort of uh, rocks on the top, um, and then you've got rocks that are supposedly four hundred million years old. Uh, underneath, why hadn't they eroded away in the in the meantime? Why are they Why are they still there to then be pushed up over the other rocks? Uh, you know, there, there, there's just major problems with the interpretation, whatever way you look at it. You know, how can these other rocks be sitting there, nice and flat, nice and smooth, um, for you know whatever it is, or well, maybe a uh, hundred million years, and then there they are, nice and neat ready to be pushed up over the top of the other rocks. It doesn't mm. work. Erosion is occurring all the time pretty well. Mm. Most areas, you get wind erosion out in the desert areas. We get rain erosion in the high rainfall areas. So no matter what way we look at it, there, uh, there are major problems. There's another example. I just can't remember what the, um, uh, what the name is. I think it might be uh, the, uh, a formation down in Texas. Yes, I'm pretty sure it is in Texas. Now, what's happened in, in this Texas uh, uh, outcrop is quite fascinating. So if you can imagine the up and down shape of gears, you know how, uh, how uh, like a, a gear from a gearbox, um, it, it's round, of course, but it, it has the little spikes, right? Yes. There are grooves yes. in between. So there's a, a formation there where you've got the younger rocks have eroded Away. The so-called younger rocks have, er- have eroded, leaving these grooves 
erosion grooves. Now, these erosion grooves are actually then filled with rocks that are much older. So what? So your conventional overthrusting model can't work. How can an overcrusting slab of rock fill gears, fill the grooves in the gears, yes. without chopping off the top of the gears, for example? Yes. Was that the so, uh, um, Franklin Mountains in Texas? Wasn't I think. It? I think it is. Yes. I think. It, I think that's where it is. I, I'm uh, from memory now. Positive. It's in Texas. So you know. Again, it just defies the fact that these rocks are hundred a million years apart. It just can't work. You can't push these older rocks over the top of grooves and then fill them in the grooves and have them there with their, their layers. It's got to have occurred at the same time. So, again, that evidence powerfully suggests that all these rocks were laid down, all these sedimentary deposits were laid down at the same time, not millions of years apart. It just doesn't fit. So I think the main point is when we look at the polystrate fossils, when we look at the uh, the overthrusting type scenarios, when we look at the lack of erosion between these conformably overlaying layers that are supposedly millions of years apart, the whole picture fits that it must have happened quickly. It must have all happened around the same time. Mm. You can't bury dinosaurs with little local floods you know, and build up sediments. And so although, as I said, there's an inconsistency there. The geologists are now recognising there was a catastrophic past, but they're still sticking to the uniformitarian method of calculating the ages. You can't have one and the other. They Mm. don't work. Mm. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been examining the evidence for a global catastrophic flood. When we come back, John will focus on the evidence for rapid sedimentation that we can actually observe today. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible. 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been examining the evidence for a global catastrophic flood. In our remaining time today, John will focus on the evidence for rapid sedimentation that we can actually observe today. The evidence for a single post-global flood ice age and the evidence from landforms. I also want to ask John about valves or annual layers of sediment or ice. John, what's the significance of the Mount St. Helens explosion for rapid sedimentation. 
The Mount St. Helens aftermath uh, has given us a very, very clear picture of a catastrophic type uh, scenario because you had the volcanic eruption, but then there were also um, the flood type uh, events as water was released from uh, the lake on the side of the mountain and formed the gorges, uh, sort of mimicking the, the Grand Canyon type scenario. So we have the, uh, the ash fallout that formed the different layers and then we have the erosion type uh, scenario. Now, when we look at these layers, they they form just little layers. So you might have um, they might be say eight millimeters um, or you know about a third of an inch um, thick. These these different layers. Now, conventionally, if you you just came in uh, with a, a conventional long age uniformitarian picture and looked at these little layers. And you'd count them, uh, count them up, uh, and so in areas uh, you might have these layers, say over 25 feet of um, of sediment, and you you uh, or of deposit, and you counted them up. Then you're going to get you know thousand years or so forth as the uh, amount of time that it took for these layers to form. But you know that they formed in a day. So it 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 illustrates that there's a um, mechanisms that so the observed. So the observational evidence is really telling us that our model, the, fl- the global flood model, is quite consistent with what we're seeing. Well, it's quite consistent in a modern experiment. So people yeah. often challenge us and say, well, look, you, you know, the, the flood, how, how can you sort of test that as a scientific theory? Well, the volcano provided a, a test scenario, which we have gone and observed, and we find, well, we find a physical outcome that could be interpreted under the uniformitarian model as taking a very long period of time. Mm. But in actual fact, it was observed and it only took a very short period of time. And that factor is, you know, out by a thousand or so, you know. So it's, it's, it's very, very clear that the uniformitarian model doesn't, doesn't fit. The same with the erosion. The erosion of the canyon, um, it formed uh, this canyon, I, I forget the depth of it, so it's 40, 50 uh, feet deep from memory, but it formed in a few hours. So again, we find the same sort of uh, scenario that again fits the catastrophic model and that you can't say, well, this represents, you know, millions of years of, of, uh, of some sort of event happening out there in the world. So, so this is a very important from the point of view of interpreting the evidence around the world that we see. The evidence that we see all around the world when we look in our railway cuttings, our highway cuttings, when geologists drill, when they're drilling for oil and so forth, and we, we look at all the layers, it fits the model of rapid deposition, very little erosion in between, Animals buried very quickly, footprints even preserved. That's how rapidly the um, the material is laid down, um, and be- large animals buried. We have huge, huge amounts of material, and unimaginably huge. In our mind, I, I think it's just hard to imagine how can a layer of sandy sort of material. Uh, 450 feet th- thick or 150 metres thick be spread 
over hundreds of thousands of square kilometres. Mm. How, how can that happen? It's, we don't see anything, anything like that happening today. Mm. Mm. Now, there's evidence that the world was much wetter in the past, especially in some now desert regions. Mm. What is some of this evidence and what is its significance for a single ice age in a global flood model? Right. Okay. Now, you know, one of the fascinating things I found in doing my research was that they've made a lot of studies now under the Sahara Desert, and they've found the uh, fossilised remains of crocodiles and hippopotamuses. They've identified um, uh, cultures that lived there. They've found fishing equipment, fish hooks and uh, spears, this sort of thing. And fascinatingly, they've found you know, numerous watercourses. Some watercourses have been as large as the Nile. So we know that the Sahara, which is a massive desert now, was once a very, very lush, rich uh, region and very, very wet. And it's the same in many water areas. I mean, I've uh, flown over Nevada, I think it is, and you look down and you just see the network of what was once rivers. Uh, that's how I, I interpret it anyway, flying across it in, my, mm. in, my, in, in the plane. Mm. Uh, and yet it's a massive desert area now. So that's, uh, we know that in, there, there's evidence in Australia here in many areas that these areas were much, much wetter in the past. Also, the poles were much warmer. Like we find corals at the, at the South Pole. We find evidence of uh, many animals that would have ate, uh, eaten vegetarian up in the Arctic re- region too, that that was you know, much warmer in in the past, so obviously there were, as you talked about, ice ages, um, a, a massive ice age after flood, and this is actually what we would expect in some ways too, because if you, the Bible talks about the fountains of the deep opening up, so water coming out, and we know the water from deep down is is warm, very hot. Uh, we go to thermal springs, don't we? Sometimes on our holidays. Um, so this would have heated up the oceans to a degree. That would have increased evaporation, and we know evaporation then produces cooling. You know the the old canvas bag that used to hang on the front of your your vehicle when you were travelling outback or through hot areas. Um, the cooling. Uh, and the older type refrigerators, this evaporation led to the cooling of the water. The actual biblical flood model is the best model to explain the ice ages. Mm. Conventional Mm. science has a lot of problems trying to generate mechanisms to create these ice ages because they need a number of ice ages according to their dating. Of course, they're... Their time periods are so spread out. They've they've got to spread ice ages out for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, After the flood, however, it seems it's likely that there was perhaps one or two massive ice ages as the world had this evaporative cooling, froze, and then these melted, warmed up, um, and then maybe there was a cycle. Um, You know, we, we don't know for sure, but this would certainly explain how... Sometime after, and, and I think the best creationist models have estimated that it was about 500 years after the flood, probably around the time of Abraham when the massive ice age struck. And maybe that is why these different groups moved down to Egypt, moved down to the warmer climes. Um, and possibly that was the time when we had like the, the uh, woolly mammoths and um, these other more recent uh, animals frozen. Hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you about ice valves, which are 
basically just um, set, just layers mm. of ice or, or sediment. Mm. So you can get them in lakes or you can get them in, uh, in areas of ice. Mm. Aren't they an anomaly for a global flood? slow and gradual, so you'd be able to go down through Look, these this thousands is often of layers. Claimed, this is often claimed that they've drilled down, say, through the Greenland ice core, which is about 10,000 feet thick, uh, whatever that is in metres. Uh, I think it's just under 3,000 metres thick, um, or around 3,000 metres thick. Um, and they look at the, these particular layers in the, in the ice crystallisation um, down through these very deep ice cores and they come back to hundreds of thousands of years and they say, look, here we have clear evidence for um, the, uh, you know, that the earth is, is much older than what the Bible would say. But <laughs> again, um, when we look at this, uh, you know, we, we don't know. If there was a catastrophic condition in the past, how can, again, we assume a uniformitarian model to calculate these ages? And when you do simple calculations, like, for example, the, you know, those famous World War II uh, bombers that um, landed on the ice after the German submarine uh, jammed their radio communication and they were lost and they landed on the ice... Now, that, that was during the, the Second World War, and I think they were discovered again in the, in the late 1980s sometime. And so when they found those planes, 40-odd years later, uh, 40 or 50 years later, um, they were, uh, from memory, more than 250 feet down. So if you got 50 into 250, you got five feet a year. Uh, of, of snow there. Now, it's only 10,000 you know, feet uh, uh, thick of ice there. If, you, if you're going to have the uniformitarian model there, and this is on data we measure now, right, yes, the erosion yes. rates that we measure now, maximum 2,000 years old. So what we actually see... So, so what we see yeah. in the president, what we see in the president, rather, actually tells us that we need to be careful about assuming that these are annual layers in the ice. Oh, well, very much so. And, I mean, even if we apply that sort of theory, we're going to come up with a much younger date anyway, you know. So, I mean, you can't have it, you can't have it both ways. There are major problems with any model for them to produce the uh, ice ages. There, there have been models that have been proposed based on uh, slight... Um, Movements of the uh, or, or va variation in uh, sort of sun uh, starlight uh, reaching the Earth and uh, so forth, causing variations in um, slight variations in temperature. But none of these variations have been big enough to promote an ice age, or the variations in the sun's uh, temperature have been large enough to promote an ice age. Um, the cycles don't fit the claimed cycles that are in the uh, ice age or the ice farb records. There's just huge inconsistencies that they haven't got a model that fits the data really well. Now, I guess some will make assertions that they have, but from my reading of the literature, there are major uh, contentions about the proposed models by other scientists that they're, they're just not fitting. Whereas the flood model fits beautifully the data that we see. It, it fits really well. It, it provides, you know, a, a, a model that works. <laughs> That's the important thing. Um, these long-age models, they run into problems here, there, and, uh, and, and, and so forth. But the flood model, if you have hot water, 
high evaporation then, cooling, it, it just fits a massive ice age after the flood. Mm. Sean, we're running out of time, but I would like you to just explain uh, an example of a landform that can only be explained by an enormous global flood. Do we have an example? Well, the ones that we've just talked about, these massive geological deposits like the you know, the so-called White Cliffs of Dover, the Cretaceous that spread across there, uh, right across Europe there, um, the, the Morrison Formation, these sandstones uh, formations that we've, we've seen uh, can only form under these massive flood-type uh, examples. I think I was thinking of Tasmania where you have a mountain range, and then you have a river going straight through the mountain range. Oh, yes. Well, that's another very good example. You're really on the ball there, Barry. Yes. So the Gordon Splits, for example, in Tasmania, here we have this very narrow chasm, um, about 20 foot wide, uh, hundreds of feet deep, uh, passing just straight through the mountain range. And there are many examples of this, where we have a river cutting right through a mountain range. But I think that leads us into another very interesting scenario and that we don't often talk about, and that is we find these fossil layers up on the tops of mountains. And so there is evidence, and we can talk about this another time, that these mountain ranges were pushed up after the flood. So you have essentially the Earth's surface fairly uniform, and then you have a massive movement of the plates after the flood that pushed up these mountains, the Alps, the mountains in, in America, and so forth. And that explains how if this happened after the flood, where you've got this water still pouring off and so forth, why they cut through those layers. Again, it fits the biblical flood model very well. And, um, and I think this is another thing. People say, well, how, how were the mountains covered during the flood? Well, the, the secret is the mountains were pushed up after the flood. Hmm. And we have, again... It's separate, independent, and even astronomical evidence that supports that. Okay. John, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Would you like to just sum up the evidence in perhaps about a minute and then tell us what our topic for conversation is next week? Well, to me, as I've looked at the, uh, the stratigraphy of the surface of the Earth and the geological reports about this. We see evidence of massive deposits of material that must have been moved underwater. We've got big animals that were developed, obviously under catastrophic conditions. We've got trees growing up through these layers. So you can't have these layers multi-millions of years old. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing. Their time scale has got to be out. It's got to be recent. It's got to be catastrophic. It fits a flood model. And that leads us to the fact that there's actually a lot of historical evidence for the flood model. And I think that would be really good to talk about next week. So we're going to talk about the historical evidence. So this is going to be from different cultures that are spread across the world? Yes, we'll talk about that from uh, different cultures, but there's also astronomical evidence as well that we can talk about. Sounds mm. fascinating. I look mm. forward to that one. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Next week, our conversation will be on the historical evidence for a worldwide flood. Don't miss this important topic. Until then... Bye for now and God bless you.